drugs and sex, an intoxicating combination. Chemsex is, for some, the pinnacle of the queer experience. For others, it can warp into a spiral of self-destruction. As queer people, we often have a complex relationship with pleasure and intimacy, but bringing life back into balance can be a wonderful journey. This is Not In Vain, a podcast about addiction, mental health, and recovery in all its forms. My name is Honor Script, a recovered ex-addict and drag weirdo. My opinions are my own, and don't forget, listening to podcasts isn't treatment. If you're worried about your substance use, please seek professional advice. Some people may also benefit from mutual aid groups. On this episode, I sit down with Michael Devereaux, a support worker and previously a volunteer in addiction services, who has lived experience of chemsex. We'll be chatting about his recovery journey, harm reduction, chemsex, and the kink community. So, um, obviously we talked about, you know, the kind of topics that we're looking at is kind of chemsex and kink, and this is stuff that you have way more knowledge and experience about than me, so I'm really excited to hear your insight, but just to kind of start us off, uh, do you want to just explain a little bit about what chemsex is? Because I know not everyone's familiar with the term. Yeah, sure. So chemsex is the idea of getting together with either a regular partner or more often than not, it could just be a random off one of the apps like Grindr and things like that. And you partake in drug use whilst uh, having sex. And these sessions can sometimes go on for days. Um, so yeah, the, the, like I've, I've looked at some of the reasons as, as why perhaps chemsex is so prevalent amongst the queer male community. Um, and there's like this loads of like, you can go down the psychological route, you can go down the economic route, you can think of, oh, well, what are the factors in this? And, and some of it is socioeconomic, it's queer men and women have, had more more disposable income previously, which has probably fed into that hedonistic idea that some people have for us. Um, and yeah, for some people they are really hedonistic, but then others grow out of it. Like I'm in my pajamas by seven o'clock most nights now. You know, I'm, I'm in bed by nine o'clock most nights, and I like that. I, I like kind of not having to worry about. Um, sourcing chems or anything like that like um because i used to order my stuff off the dark web and the stress that would come if your regular vendor wasn't selling anything at the minute you'd just be like well, what do i do what do i do and now i don't have that yeah yeah i used to get most of my drugs off the dark web as well and it gives you a very different relationship with your postman doesn't it when you're like counting the seconds until they arrive and getting really on edge um and, well, you uh, know where I used to live, because um, for people listening, um, we've both lived in the same area in Newcastle before, um, and I used to be able to, my bedroom window was actually at the front of the property, so I'd be there, I'd, I'd have ordered my stuff on the Friday, and I'd be there, I'd be up from about six o'clock the Saturday, sat at my windowsill waiting for that flash of red from the postie, like, and then... You'd see him, you'd go to the kitchen, flip the kettle on, downstairs, you open it as you're coming up the stairs, and then five minutes later, yeah. and then that's you for three days. Yeah. And you mentioned, obviously, um, chemsex it is primarily, it's mostly gay and bisexual men. Um, are, there, are there heterosexuals who do it as well? Because it seems like that combination of drugs and sex is something that probably most people would, would get something from. There are, it's just they don't know it by the name chemsex. They just think it's, think it's just sex with, you know, some added party favours. And it is. But um, one of the reasons why chemsex is so prevalent is because it creates a, a sense of connection, even among strangers, which um, you can kind of look at the psychological stuff behind that as well. You have people who are often ostracised or singled out when they're in their teenage years and they're just looking for any sort of connection, any sort of meaning, meaningful connection. It's, um, it's, very, it's very human at its, at its basis level to want that connection. It's just we've got to a point where we would like to bypass any of the work that it takes to forge that connection. I think that's a good way of, of describing chemsex. Yeah. 
And it sounds like it's quite similar to the relationship that uh, a lot of men have with hookup apps like Grindr, where even if drugs aren't involved, it is that sort of very kind of instant connection that people are looking for, the kind of the, the instant intimacy without any of the, the sort of normal, I guess, social trappings. Without the legwork. Without yeah. the leg, basically, that's it. Um, and for some people, it works well for them. They, they can do chemsex, you know, once a month or once every couple of months. But for uh, the vast majority of people that, you know, that once a month becomes twice a month then three times a month and then before you, you know it you know it's, it's an every weekend kind of thing and in some cases it becomes even more frequent than that um i was definitely on my way towards that when i sort of gave chems up um it had been a chemsex thing and then it just started me it became just me using on my own in the flat um and that was well on its way from becoming a payday thing, which was every fortnight. If I had the money, it probably would have been um, every every weekend, but meth's expensive. Yeah. <laughs> so was it meth mainly that you used? Were there any other drugs as well? Meth was my, my drug of choice. Um, it did what I wanted, the quickest out of everything, and it, kept, it had the longest effect. So, but I, you know cost-by-cost cost basis it probably was was the best option for us yeah what other kind of drugs do people use for chemsex is it generally stimulants yeah um although in some cases it could also be ketamine um I, for me that's kind of like i like to know what's going on and whilst i have when i was younger and i, I used to i have used ketamine during chemsex um i just now it's like no I need, I need to know exactly what's going on at the time and I don't want anything sort of um affecting my ability to make a judgment about something um even though stimulants we know do that as well we know they do that but when you add a depressant in the mix ketamine alcohol anything like that that's when it can get a bit a bit dangerous especially there are other um party drugs that are used for chemsex, uh, GHB. Um, again, that's another one where if you add an alcohol in the mix, it's so dangerous. I, I can guarantee that if someone partakes in chemsex and they've used G, they've gone over at least once. Um, I know I have. I can probably name three occasions. Um, but it, it's that safety thing of, of know what you're mixing. So, um, one of the, like, you'll know this, that um, polydrug use in the country is at its most high in the northeast and in Scotland as well, in the Glasgow area. Um, and that's, that becomes really dangerous because we'll have these substances interacting in our system when, you know, when it's all going aka, for better of a word. Um, but when we try to stick to just one substance, it makes it safer. Or at least that's how it seemed in my head. I didn't want to be mixing up the, the, the two different things. I thought if I'm going to do it, I might as well be as safe as possible. And yeah. I mean, I'm still alive, but, you know, I've got some gnarly scars on my arm, but that, that's pretty much it. Yeah, I guess that's the thing with with any kind of drug use is harm reduction is is key. You know, there's no such thing as completely 100% safe drug use. You know, even just having a glass of wine, you could have a funny turn and, and something could go wrong. So mm -hmm. anything you do when you're using substances is about trying to minimise that risk as much as possible. And obviously we know polydrug use is, is generally a, a huge risk, especially if you don't really know what you're mixing or you haven't done your research to know which things go well together and which don't. Yeah, it's th things like benzos and stuff. Um, that That's what, like, I see more 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 often at work. It's it's people under the influence of benzos, especially street benzos are so dangerous. The amount of deaths that that we see happen, you know, all over the northeast. Um, like obviously when like when when we do an admin at work, um, we, we go through the drug list and sometimes they're talking about it. like oh great great this this is just marvelous that's just marvelous let's put lots of alerts on that on their record and, and things like that. Um, but all you can do is try to say, well, if you're going to say, if you're going to inject smack, 
as well as taking benzos, maybe you should think about, you know, smoking the smack rather than taking the benzos. But I never thought that I would end up in a job where I have to say things like that. <laughs> yeah. I love it though. I do love it um, because it's, it's proper boots on the ground, harm reduction. It's where I used to love working at the needle exchange in town as well. Yeah. Because it's like proper, you just get stuck in. I think it's it's probably the most important work that, that you can do when you're working with people who use drugs, really, because recovery, not everyone wants it, and, and people who do don't necessarily want it straight away when they engage with services. Um, and the most important thing you can do is keep people alive long enough to make those kind of decisions. You know, I'm definitely only still here because of harm reduction advice that I had, both from professionals and from the person who initiated me into using heroin. You know, sometimes people have really negative... Um, sort of attitudes towards the people who've introduced them to drugs or introduced them to certain drugs. Um, but the person who showed me how to use heroin also showed me things like making sure you use clean needles, how to inject in a way that causes the minimum damage, uh, talk to me about sort of um, tolerance increases and decreases and, and polydrug use and all of that kind of stuff, knowledge that definitely stopped me from dying. Um, so it's, it's something that I think everyone should be more informed about, you know, I'm like a big advocate for people carrying naloxone, even if they don't use opiates and even if they don't know anyone who uses opiates, because the more of us that are carrying it, the more chance that the people who overdose will have someone around who can help. It's also handy if anyone's gone over on spice, because we know what spice is like, you know, um, more often than not, if someone's gone over on it, jabbing them with naloxone tends to bring them out. Um, but you look at sort of the, the chemistry behind spice because it's it's not regulated. So some stuff can be cut with opioids, some stuff is just, yeah. Um, but I, th I think I was reading that um, with normal weed, um, your brain only takes up about 50% of the THC in it. But with spice, it takes up 100%. Um, and weirdly, I've just had an Asda food shop delivered earlier and our conversation got on a spice with the, the delivery driver. Um, lovely bloke, really lovely bloke. He said he used to work in the prisons. Um, so for you, how did you get into chemsex? Did someone sort of introduce you to it? Yes, I suppose that um, the start of it would probably have to be, would probably be linked with me um, becoming more involved with the kink community. When, I mean, don't get us wrong, I'd done pills whilst I've been out clubbing and stuff and that, that was fine. Um, but the more involved I became with the community, the more normalised drug use seemed at the time. Um, and it sort of starts off, you go you go over to, over to someone for a session, and that's the best way I can, I can do to describe it. Um, and what might have started off as just a couple of lines, suddenly then, you know, a year down the road, you're injecting crystal meth or, or you know, you're injecting MCAT. Uh, so yeah, it's my introduction to chemsex was through the kink community and I'm not blaming the kink community at all. Um, there are lots of us in there who are sober as far as, you know, chems are concerned, um, but it's definitely an issue. Yeah, it's, as you say, when things are normalised, when you're around people who are doing this all the time, and at least from the outside, everything everything seems to be fine for them, and maybe for a lot of them, it, it is well under control. It can feel less of a big step, I guess, to try that yourself. Mm -hmm. but, um, um, yeah, just I'm never going to say to people, "Oh, don't do that, don't do that." But what I will say is, okay, have you considered this? Have you considered that? Are you getting? things you know are you getting clean work so you, do you know how to inject properly it's that thing it goes back to harm reduction and unfortunately a lot of guys haven't been shown how to do it properly um like like yourself um i was shown how to slam inject um by an ex-nurse so i knew that i was doing it safely i was just doing it way too much yeah <laughs> And sort of what kind of feelings do you have towards the person or, or people who kind of got you started with chemsex? Because like I mentioned, sometimes people have that sort of resentment there. But for me, it was always quite a positive relationship where I knew what I was getting into. And um, no, I, I don't have any ill feelings towards them at all. It's a case of 
as an adult, um, I went into it. I'm not going to blame somebody else for my decisions at the end of the day. Um, it's the onus is on me because we can't just shift the blame onto somebody else because that, that's not how it works. That's not how recovery works. At least it's not for me. Um, not a 12-step up, but I do believe in taking ownership of everything that I've done in the past. Um, I'm also brutally honest about some of my past conduct when I was younger. Um, I've not hidden away from it. Um, I, I was always really honest with my other half when we got together. It's quite funny. He's never even so much as smoked a joint. <laughs> and then there's me. <laughs> you know, he doesn't really drink. Um, you know, and then there's me. So, yeah, um, I have no ill feelings towards those, that person or peoples, because it's not just kind of, it hasn't come from just one place. Yeah. Um, it's it's on me. I'm the one who was like, yeah, yeah, this is fine. Let's go with this. I'm the one who, you know, down the road, I was, I was ordering stuff using Bitcoins. You know, it's not as though somebody else was doing it for me. I was, it was all on me. The decision was always with me. And it's the same as when I made the decision to stop. And I was very, very lucky in, in being able to say, right, that's enough. That's it. Um, and I remember one of our first meetings uh, whilst you were a rep and I was a volunteer, um, I said that I'd done it without a programme and you, you mentioned that people call that crazy and clean. Yeah. <laughs> and that's always stuck with us and I thought, right, you know, that, it kind of works and I'm all right with that. Yeah. I guess obviously at the time we met, I was very hardline 12 step and it kind of blew my mind when I started meeting people who were recovering without a program or, or with a different program um, because I'd been told that that was impossible and that if I attempted it, I would either relapse and end up dying or I would be clean and crazy and really unhappy and you've never seemed unhappy with, with your recovery. It seems like whatever you're doing works really well for you. Um, yeah, for me, um, like my number one tenet when it comes to being in recovery is honesty. I'm honest about how I'm feeling uh, about certain things. Um, like, I'm, I'm, I've been honest with my other half and my manager. It's like this last year has been, I've want, want to use more in the last year since COVID hit than I did in my first year of recovery, just because of the stress. But we're kind of, we've got through it. It feels like we're coming out of the other side. I've had both of my jobs. How many of you had? Both, yeah, both. Yes. Fully vaccinated. <laughs> a nice feeling. Yeah. <laughs> I keep saying to people like, oh, now it's fine for me to do things like I could lick the pole on the metro. And everyone's like, no, you, you still can't do that. <laughs> but no. it just feels like I'm invincible. It's brilliant. But yeah, um, like we know that recovery is it's individual to the person. You know, do what works for you. That's what, what I always say. And I'm, I'm part of a, a couple of sort of... Um, fetish drug-free groups on Facebook and stuff. And I've done a couple of Instagram interviews with, for them as well. Um, and honestly, for me, it's a case of, if it works for you, great, go with it. If it keeps you in recovery, great. You know, you don't have to be a 12-stepper. You don't have to be a smart recovery person. If you, your thing of, you know, is to getting drug-free is taking yourself off for a, a walk down the beach every day and that works for you, Great, that works for you. Do you know what I mean? Um, I think we, one of the things that the NHS isn't great at is understanding that there is more than one route for treating drug and alcohol misuse. Because um, for some people, it's about getting down to the, the root cause of what's made them want it to, made them crave this substance. You know, it, it is the psychosocial intervention. But for some people, they wouldn't be able to stand that. So I know people who rely on mindfulness. I can't stand it. Like, I actually hate it. When I used to volunteer on a Friday, they used to have like a 10 minute um, mindfulness session in the flash meeting at work. And I'd just be sat there thinking, the fuck is this? <laughs> like, I really can't be asked this. And like, you know, I'm, I'm not so wrapped up in, in myself thinking that, oh, this is, it's all too airy fairy shite. I don't believe and anything like that at all. If anything, I'm, I'm the kind of person who I will sit and I'll read your tarot for you. Because I think things like that do work. 
But mindfulness, it just makes us think. I can hear everybody breathing and it's not a nice sound. Yeah, there's definitely limits to the usefulness of mindfulness. I think it's one of these things people have seized onto as like a, a cure-all and it works really well for some people and it works really well for some issues. But it, this idea that everyone needs to be practicing it is, it's too, it's that thing again, like you said, of trying to push everyone down a single treatment pathway, trying to push everyone into mindfulness or trying to push everyone into 12 step or there's nothing that is right for everybody and there's nothing that's right for anybody all the time I think there's been times yeah. when I found mindfulness helpful and other times where I just my brain can't settle and the more I try to make it settle the worse I feel so you kind of have to be adaptable to what you need at the time yeah I, I have like pretty bad anxiety issues anyway and if I try to use mindfulness to sort of get any like a panic attack under control it would just be like nah this is not going to work um, in fact, like you would probably make me even worse. Yeah. So yay for beta blockers. <laughs> yeah, I know like I've met a few people who really struggle with, with mindfulness and other forms of meditation. And it's quite often um, like people with any kind of trauma to do with anything that has happened to their body tend to struggle with things like focusing on the breath or focusing on relaxing certain body parts and things like that. Um, gender dysphoria and mindfulness quite often don't play nicely together because of, again, that focus on your body. Um, so there's lots of little things that can just disrupt what might otherwise be useful. And, and you just have to be adaptable to that, don't you? And, and find something different. I use audiobooks. Yeah. Works really, really well. Um, for me, my colleague, um, I've mentioned that that's what I used to try and just try and chill out. And they came back to me and they're like, yeah, actually that really, really, really works. Um, I think for a lot of a lot of us is our brain just goes in overdrive when there's not nothing there to focus on. So by having that thing to focus on, someone reading something, it could be something you've listened to hundreds of times. But if that's what gets you relaxed and if it, that's what makes you chill, then you fill your boots. Yeah. I in in some of the, the lockdowns when I was struggling a bit with loneliness with living on my own. I got really into listening to podcasts then and watching like streamers on, on Twitch and stuff like that, which I'd never been into before because it feels a little bit more social than just watching a, a TV show or a movie. It feels kind of like you're hanging out with, with a person or a couple of mates. Um, I, as we are sat here talking, my other half is in his living room next door watching a and d stream on Twitch. <laughs> so that, that's, that's how he sort of chills out and that, that's what works for him. Um, it's it's not a one-size-fits-all, really, is it, when, when we deal with any sort of mental health issue. Um, like, the, as far as, you know, addicts and recovery, there's a, a really famous doctor called Gabor Mate, I think, mm -hmm. and he talks how he's never met um, an addict that hasn't experienced some form of trauma. And, and that can come in lots of places, especially if you're, you know, you don't, fit in with everybody else if you're you know 12 13 with ginger hair and big teeth and glasses and quite effeminate um that in itself creates trauma because you automatically become the um the, the kind of the person in the crosshairs for for bullies and things like that so that that effectively is your life for the next four five six years and that creates trauma as well so we also have to think about, think about things like second adolescence amongst queer community. Um, for a lot of us, we weren't allowed to be us. So when we get up and we're more uh, settled and confident in who we are as adults, we then branch out and we try and do these things. And we, we tend to be very messy and make a lot of mistakes. And I would say at least half in my experience of chatting to people, I'm not saying that's a, a blanket for everyone, but I'd say at least half of us who've been in this position have had experience like that. Yeah, absolutely. The worst sort of two years of my drug addiction were pretty much sort of six months to a year after I came out as trans was when things started really escalating because exactly as you say, it was that second adolescence. I was finally able to be myself and I was doing all the stuff that that I would have liked to do as a teenager if I hadn't felt so kind of caged in by not understanding myself and not being able to express myself. Um, so I'd had a problematic relationship with drugs for quite a while. 
but it had always been just on the edge of getting out of control. And it was mm. that period of second adolescence where I just went from zero to a hundred pretty much overnight and did all the things that I'd always been too scared to do before and, and faced the consequences for it. Yeah. And that, that happens when you kind of come out the tail end of it, we do face the consequences and we, we own everything we've done. We have to, otherwise what's the point? Yeah. You know, we can't just keep sticking our head in the sand and ignoring the mistakes that we've made. But what we can do is we can say, right, it happened. How can I improve on it? How can I make sure that it doesn't happen again? Is there any way that I could, if you know, keep an, if, if I was to say that happening in people that were around me, I'd be able to say to them, this was my experience. I'm not, you know, trying to say, don't do this, don't do this. But what I can say is, this was my experience. And by sharing in our experiences as well, I think that helps a lot. Definitely. Though so having open conversations like this, I think are really, really important. Yeah, it takes away the mystery, doesn't it? And, and lets people know that whatever their sort of experience with this kind of stuff is, that, that they're not going through it alone and, and they have options. Yeah. Find a meeting or find a mate who gets it, even if they, you know, haven't ever used in their life. If, you, if you've got something which can help you stay safe, I'm not talking about just being in recovery, but if you've got something that can help you maintain safety, keep a hold of it, seriously, because we see it over and over again, you know, um, people mixing the substances they're on and then they're found by their mates later on. Like, again, we talked about earlier, benzos. Yeah. How many deaths are we seeing, you know, of late because of dodgy Valium? So you'd mentioned a little bit around the term addict, you know, we, we talked a bit about addiction. Um, how do you feel about the term addict? Um, do you apply it to yourself or, or did you at the time? I never viewed myself as an addict and that, that's simply because I didn't struggle to come off any substance. I didn't struggle at all. And I felt if I was to say, oh yeah, you know, I was an addict, it would be doing a disservice to those who did struggle um, because I don't want my experience to minimise their experience. At least that's how it is in, in my head. It's, um, I'm not saying that I'm not an addict just because I'm, I don't want to say that I'm not an addict. I'm not saying that, I'm saying that I wasn't an addict because I didn't struggle like some other people have. And that struggle needs to be acknowledged. Um, and I also think that anyone who is, you know, trying to get that stuff together, they deserve as much support as possible. Um, so someone, if someone's like, all oh, right, I'm, I'm going to give up PEMS, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it. And they keep trying and they're not quite getting it. We still need to support them. They're the people who need support because it's very, very rare that people get into recovery, a first attempt of getting into recovery. Yeah. So it might take a hundred attempts. And it might be the 101st attempt that does it. And that needs to be celebrated, that these people are trying and then not giving up. Whereas for me, I didn't feel that it was fair to label myself that because it does a disservice to anybody else who struggled. That makes that sense. Makes I get sense. that. Yeah. I think, you know, I would never want to like gatekeep the term addict, uh, especially as I don't consider myself an addict anymore. It's a term that I've sort of moved away from for various reasons. But I can see that, you know, the, the kind of purpose of language and identity labels and things like that is to find people with a common experience. And if your experience of stopping using chems doesn't align with the majority of, of people who would class themselves as addicts, then maybe the, the value of that label would be less for you anyway, because it's not communicating what you would want it to communicate. I am in recovery. I am, um, you know, I hold my hands up. I'm in recovery. Um, I just, I still enjoy, a, you know, a drink, love a couple of gins, that's it. But chems, no, I just can't. Just even this, this like, somebody said to me, oh, would you not even be able just to, like, align? Because that's not, you know, that's not crystal meth. And I was like, do you know what I, I might be able to? But 
I wouldn't want to put myself in that situation. You know, whilst the line of coke may not be, you know, what was my substance of choice, what's to say that that line of coke wouldn't sort of give me false confidence in my ability to manage that. And I like having my shit together. It's really, really difficult to sort of lead in any semblance of, I don't want to say normal life, but, you know, normal life when you're thinking, where's your next hit coming from? You know, what's the rattle going to be like? Things like that. I mean, like, I have chronic pain, so I have to take quite strong pain medications anyway. Um, and honestly, the worst rattle I've ever done is from pre -cabin. Honestly, horrendous. And I'm prescribed that substance. Um, I wish that I didn't need it. Um, but honestly, the rattle, grim, absolutely grim. Yeah, I've heard that's a bad one to come off, definitely. It's, I mean, things have moved in the last, what, 18 months. It's been made a, a controlled substance. Yeah. But we still have the, you know, the dodgy street ones doing the, the rounds. Like, I've seen them brought brought into work or we've found, found them in someone's room. And, like, I, I can look at them and I'm like, yeah, well, they're obviously snide because I've been getting the real McCoy, you know, for the last 10 years. And I just feel like saying, do you have any idea what could be in this? And they would say no. And I was like, good, because the people who were making them probably don't have any clue what's in them either. Do you, I'm sorry, I'm jumping backwards and forwards because oh, I'm making sure that I get all the interesting stuff. Um, so with your um, relationship with Chemsex, did it have any effects on your physical and mental health? I guess that may have played a, a role in why you decided to stop. Um... To be honest, the one of the reasons why I went back to using chems was because I'd had a patch of mental health which was horrendous, like absolutely horrendous to the point where I had a nice little holiday for a couple of weeks in the hairdressing clinic um, and my drug use sort of re-established itself simply because I, was used, I needed a crutch for how bad my mental health was um, and that did start with chemsex again simply because I wanted that connection that that's kind of where where it went and that kind of that was the case for a, a couple of years yeah a couple of years but yeah that'd be about right um so it started uh, as i could get mcat quite easily so it started off with chemsex just using that injecting mcat um, and then it graduated on, uh, well, it's not really doing the job that it was in the beginning. Perhaps I should then, you know, up to crystal meth. And at the time, it was, my mental health was in such a way where it seemed like the only logical option. Um, but once I sort of managed to, I don't want to sound dramatic, but wrestle with me demons, um, that made things easier. Once I started looking at kind of uh, the the root causes of things, you know, um, like I still had a lot of unresolved grief over um, bereavements in the family that I just kind of um, wanted to get back to normal. Apparently it's called restorative grief. Right. Where you just want things to go back to normal. Um, but because I hadn't dealt with those emotions and those feelings at the time, they, they did fester. They, you know, they created you know, opportunity in myself for, for me to go down that route. And did you find that there was, it sounded like for a short time at least, there were some positive effects from, from what you were doing because it was able to kind of cover up some of those feelings or help you manage them? Yeah, um, it got rid of the anxiety for that moment. I just got to be able to, um, to have a normal-ish conversation with someone. You know, and even though you're partaking in chemsex, the conversations you have aren't all just around sex. It can be a, around like a whole plethora of different subjects. Um, you know, so that, that's what chemsex does. It creates as create creates connection. It sounds like you know you you've mentioned you quite had quite an easy time stopping. What was the the kind of moment where you made that decision that you needed to, and kind of what prompted that? I was bored more than anything else. I was bored. Um, I did my last hit 
20th of um, January 2018. Um, and I didn't even enjoy my last hit. That was, it just didn't enjoy it. It, it, it kind of, it had run its course. I think that's probably the best way to describe it. I, I was ready to kind of put things to one side. My mental health was in a much better place. Um, I was actually going out and doing things. I was having a social life um, because my mental illness had been so bad for such a long time. I wasn't able to go out and, and even just have a pint in a bar because my anxiety was so bad. But then kind of towards the end, it was kind of like, actually, you know what? I, I can go out, I can go out and meet friends. Um, I don't need this substance to kind of power me through it. Yeah. That sounds a lot like um, recently, I, as part of my work, I've been studying kind of the theories behind smart recovery. And they talk a bit about how a lot of people experience natural recovery. I think it's around 50% of people who've had whether they consider it an addiction or a problematic relationship with substance, they kind of naturally start to move beyond that. And through developing motivation on their own or, or through getting bored, like, like you did, they just, the mindset set shifts and they don't feel that they need to do that anymore. So it sounds like maybe that's, you know, it sounds like you've done work on your recovery since as well, but a big part of it for you sounds like it was a very natural organic process. Yeah. Um, I have a, a lot of my recovery are, are part of it. I enjoy helping other people. Um, so I used to be a, a smart recovery facilitator. God, I miss doing that so much. Like on, if the pandemic hadn't hit again, I would have been doing uh, once a month smart recovery on a Saturday at the, up at the hub. And I just wish Corona, fuck off. Seriously, <laughs> fuck off. I'm, I'm missing things like that. Um, for, for me, smart recovery if i had chosen if i would have chosen a program smart would have been my program of choice simply because of the techniques it uses um anything cbt for me helped in the past um and it's little things like you have these little tools and they're tools that i use as well as, as someone in recovery um like my go-to one is abc action behavior consequence that's always my, my go-to tool and that's what I always try and say with um, some of the lads who are quite new in recovery at work I would always say just have these little things that you can sort of that dead easy to remember if you feel like you're in a situation think right if I do this what's going to happen and what could the consequence of that be um, so yeah smart for me was was always the kind of the more natural fit um, I like lots of crosstalk as well. So the thing with 12-step of, of just having to listen wouldn't have been any good for me at all. You should see me in the staff forum meetings. I'm just... What, what's the hand up button thing? No, no, no. no. <laughs> yeah, it's... Um... It's sometimes helpful to get that kind of feedback and advice, isn't it? Even if it ends up not being useful to you, at least you can kind of sort of take it on board and, and have a think about it. Yeah, I think... Um having that that group discussion i think helps a lot um it's just something that i've always preferred you know it, it takes a village as it were yeah i definitely and how long were you involved in chemsex for sort of from kind of beginning to end roughly? Um, first time would have probably been like first proper session would have been 22 maybe um First time I injected, I was in Berlin. I was 23. Um, and 2018, so three years ago, so 10 years, a decade. Yeah. Um, and it's funny, like, you watch because certain certain drugs come in and out of fashion. It's, it's really, really weird, like, especially when the, you know, when the legal highs were about. Yeah. Nobody had anything um, illegal, really, because the legal highs was so good at the time. Yeah. There were some interesting ones there as well. Like people, when they think about legal highs, they tend to maybe think about spice. That was obviously the one that got all the attention. But because I was never much into weed, I was never interested in spice. I never tried mm -hmm. it. But there were so many um, of the legal highs that were like stimulants I was really into and hallucinogens. Um, yeah. 
variety of, of experiences that that opened up was at the time very, very appealing. Uh, did you ever use Alpha PVP? No, I didn't, no. No, I was um, really into that for a couple of months. That was wild. <laughs> I just used because um, they, they used to sell, well, they were calling it Bubble at the time, but they used to sell it in one of the, the chip shops on the scene. <laughs> and that would always be like that. Previously, like my last protocol on a night out would have been the chip shop. But for a while, it became my first protocol. Yeah. But obviously, this was before everything changed. Like, um, legal highs were made illegal the week I moved to London. Um, still, we still got them everywhere. I mean, my wallet absolutely stunk of MCAT because it has, has a very distinctive smell. And I've still got that wallet somewhere. And even though it's probably been a good 10 years since there was any substance like that in there, um, it still smells of MCAT. Do you ever find that triggering or anything? Have you sort of, do you find smells can be a trigger or any other little reminders like that? Um, crystal meth, when someone sweats crystal meth, it's, um, it has a very distinctive smell. So that can be quite triggering because it's kind of like, yeah, that, that smell just kind of reminds me of, you know, when you're at the tail end of a three-day session, everyone's wiped out. It, so that is kind of, I wouldn't say triggering, but it has certain associations that, that those smells can definitely um, bring back associations. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and you've mentioned, obviously, you didn't use any particular program. Did you look at any of those options when you were first starting your recovery? Did you consider sort of going to SMART or going to 12-step or anything? Um, I had looked at 12-step. I'd had um, uh, kind of a good look at it. And then I thought, well, no, because abstinence isn't for me. So I couldn't go into doing 12-step being honest. And what's the point if you're not going to be honest? Yeah. Um, and I hadn't actually heard of SMART recovery. Not until um, I started volunteering and then you know, I was sat in on a few of the, the sessions and I thought, yeah, I really like the um, the the dialogue that, that's going on. Um, I really like the dynamic of, of the group meetings. Um, I was used to try and treat them uh, as a bit like a coffee morning. You know, everyone going with a cup as would do your, your, um, your check-in at the weekend. For me, some people would say the check-in wasn't really, wasn't important, but for me, I would argue that it's probably only, the only thing more important than it would be the tools, but the check-in, it tends to be this the place where they've been allowed to actually voice exactly how they're feeling for the first time, maybe that week or maybe that fortnight, depending on when they could get one meeting. Yeah, sorry, sorry, I'm being molested by my cat. Sorry, <laughs> right. yeah, mine usually make an appearance in the background at some point. I think there's been at least one in so far. So obviously you said like you hadn't heard of Smart until you're already a fair way into your recovery. Do you think that the kind of full range of, of recovery options need to be more publicised? Because there was a lot of options that I would have had that I didn't know about until I'd already been in recovery a while. Yeah, I do, I do. I do think that there needs to be the information needs to be more read, needs to be made more readily available, um, and that often can come just from your GP. Your GP really is your first port of call normally when you're, you, you know, when you're getting into recovery, especially if yes, your substance is alcohol, because it has to be done, you know, medically supervised. Yeah. So. Um, I think if GPs were aware of things like smart recovery, because like, like, to be honest, the only people I know who are actually aware of it are people who are working in the recovery field. Yeah. Um, and there are people that, that I know that smart would work, would have worked great for had they been told about it the first time. But they, they, um, their drug use has kind of spiraled to a point where it's going to take more than smart recovery. It would be a case of, yeah, it's time to go away for six months. Um, so I kind of think that if, if this information was more readily available, then perhaps more people would have a better chance of getting into recovery. Yeah. 
especially for those early interventions, like you say, I think um, SMART seems to have less of a kind of expectation that people will hit rock bottom before they engage. It's kind of, they'll meet you wherever you're at, however, however sort of far along or, or early into your addiction you are. Um, where obviously the 12 step view is kind of, you have to hit rock bottom to recover, which, yeah. which seems harsh. You know, I think maybe for some people that is the case. Some people won't develop the motivation to change until things really get really bad, but I don't think it's the case for everybody. I think it's always worth having a go at, at getting help early if, if people mm -hmm. are up for trying. There's, there's loads of options out there. Yeah. And, you know, we're, we're living in a digital age now. You can do a meeting from your, you know, from your, your living room. You can, you can, if you wanted to, as long as you've got the camera off, you could do a meeting from bed. Yeah. We have that option now. And hopefully, you know, if the pandemic has brought anything about, it's made people realise that they can do things, you know, um, even from the comfort of their own home. You know, if you you know that, you know, we've got these these amazing, you know, little computers that we carry around in our back pockets and they can be used for so much more than shit posting on Facebook. <laughs> Definitely. Although that is also a valid use of time, I've got to say. Of course, of course. <laughs> and there's not, I've, I've been looking recently into resources for LGBT people in recovery. There doesn't seem to be that much aside from a few sort of themed meetings. Um, what kind of options have you encountered for maybe LGBT people who feel more comfortable in around their own people? In Newcastle, fuck all. Yeah. Absolutely fuck all. Um, there is, unfortunately, it's an area that's, that's looked over. Um, whether it be with the NHS or anything like that. But I, I genuinely feel like there should be, you know, a person who works for drug and alcohol services who is specifically there to deal with queer issues. Um, there are very specific and um, individual factors when working with queer people. And a lot of that is down to the fact of, historically, queer people tend not to have kids things like that. Um, so our we tend to socialise a lot more. And I touched on this earlier with the hedonistic side of things. Um, but for a lot of people, it gets to a point where it stops just being fun and it totally like overwhelms them. And I've seen it happen dozens of times, and I'm only 35. You know, how many times am I going to have to see this happen over and over again? Um, and bigger cities are great because they, they do have, you know, specific workers. You know, you go to Birmingham, Manchester, of course Manchester's going to have it, but London, you know. Um, and whilst Newcastle's only a small city, we have one of the biggest scenes in the country. You know, we have a really, really good queer community and we all know of at least one, what we, we will call an old lush who would sit at the end of the bar. Um, but that was just kind of, every bar has an old dush that sits at the end of the bar, don't they? But that's because that's how we've been trained to view queer venues. Yeah. Oh, there's always someone there like that. But perhaps if there'd been somebody who got the issues, who got the challenges that people are facing, then that person wouldn't be the old lush sitting at the end of the bar. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It was something I encountered a lot in my early recovery that there just wasn't really any queer spaces for people in recovery. You know, the queer community was very kind of drug and alcohol driven. And I found yeah. a few little pockets where there's, you know, events that aren't focused on that. But but generally the the socializing I was used to, there would there would be drugs and alcohol there. But in sort of the recovery community and in recovery services, there wasn't a lot of understanding and there wasn't a lot of space set aside for us. Um, you know, I did my recovery through 12 step and in 12 step with the traditions, you're not allowed to have any meetings that exclude anybody. So even when there are LGBT meetings, they tend to be about 50% straight people who just happen to like that meeting and have come along, which, yeah. you know, even if they're really accepting nice people, it makes it less safe for talking about queer issues. Mm -hmm. Um, and aside from a couple of LGBT 12 step meetings, I've never encountered any other kind of support groups focused on LGBT people in recovery. And I mean, particularly, as you say, things like chemsex are not exclusively a queer thing, but it is predominantly queer people 
who are having this very specific experience of, of their drug use that maybe they wouldn't get a lot of identification if they went into sort of a, a general 12 step or a general smart meeting around yeah. straight people whose drug use looks very, very different. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of, it, it really boils down to reading the room, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, I, I, I do believe that, you know, meetings should be open to people, but I also believe that um, being, being a queer person is a protected characteristic by law. You know, we have issues going on in our lives that, you know, straight cis people wouldn't even be able to wrap their heads around, you know. Um, so by having the support of other people who are in recovery in these queer driven meetings would just be so much better for everyone involved. Definitely, definitely. Hopefully that's something that we'll see start to, to change as more of us speak up about it. You know, I think there's a lot more I've seen since I've been in recovery, I've seen more and more queer people starting to get into recovery and starting to speak up about this stuff as well. And I think the, the tide is turning. It just it takes time. I see a lot of people on my timeline on Facebook who have just stopped drinking and because they, they realized that they were making unhealthy decisions whilst doing it. Some of them it was just because they didn't like feeling rough the next day. And that's, you know, fine. We are in a world now where if you say you don't drink, people give you a funny look. And they, they do. And yeah. like, and I asked, you know, I, I still love a, love a gin and tonic, but I would never be like, yeah, you must drink. You must have a drink now. And I would never sort of question, oh, but why aren't you drinking? Why? And I was like, I don't need to, why somebody's not drinking. If they're not drinking, they're not drinking. Just offer them a Coke or, um, you know, or a lemonade. It's as simple as that. Yeah. Yeah, during the time that I wasn't drinking at all, generally I found that people, most people were not as surprised by it as I thought they would be. I was expecting there to be kind of more stigma, but people did always want to know about it. So I'm really open. So it wasn't an issue for me to tell them, yeah, I, I used to be a heroin addict and now I don't drink. But for some people being put on the spot like that can be quite uncomfortable. You might not want to disclose to a stranger in a bar that you, you're not going to drink because of severe problems that you've had with substances in the past. You know, it's, it's a pretty personal thing to be sharing. Yeah. Um, for me, I tell you, I am um, honest about it. Um, like you get messages on the apps, you know, uh, chems, things like that. Like me, I'm in recovery. Yeah. I had one guy who was just like, I mean, yeah, I can do it though. You don't need to do anything. I was like, mate, I wouldn't even put myself in that position. Yeah. I just wouldn't. It just, that's good for you. But please don't expect me to be okay with you using in front of me. Yeah. Because I, I'm, I'm quite laid back about a lot of things like that, but I don't think I'd be able to, I don't know how I would feel if I was to see someone using in front of us. So it was interesting, you obviously mentioned you got into chemsex through the, the kink community mainly, um, and you're still quite actively involved in that community, aren't you? So how's that journey been to, to going from it being part of your chemsex life to part of your recovery life? It took me, and so I did my last hit January 2018. It took me almost two years, so it was the first weekend of December in 2019 before I actually went to a kink event again. Um, and I was shitting myself. I, I was really, really shitting myself. because so I was like, well, this is gonna be the first situation I'm in where it could possibly offer to us. Um, and it was fine. I, was I aware that people were using? Probably, yeah, but I was in a nightclub. There's always gonna be someone using. Um, but I'm glad that I gave myself, you know, pretty much two years of of not even considering going back into that that environment um i just think that it wouldn't have it wouldn't have been very good for me in the, in the end had i gone down any sooner than that because when i went down sort of december 2019 i was very very comfortable in my recovery um I had no issues talking about it at ease. I'd gone from sort of using every weekend to then volunteering um, and then 
I moved from a voluntary role to actually getting a paid role. Um, so that these were so quite, it, it was good, if you know what I mean. It was, things have progressed quite nicely and I didn't push myself too far in wanting to dive back into the kink community too quickly. I thought I'm, I'm going to take this really slowly. Um, like I didn't even sort of converse much with other kinksters for, you know, maybe the good, a good six months or so first into my, my recovery. Um, I just thought I've got friends that I've had for years and I'll continue chatting with them, but I'm not going to basically, is that your cat? It is, yeah. She's decided she wants to be a guest as well. <laughs> I was thinking, is that one of mine? No. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that I waited a while. I'm, I'm glad that I didn't rush in because um, I, I wouldn't want to set myself up to fail. Yeah. And by waiting that amount of time, some people will probably be like, what, two years, really? Did you need to wait that long? And yeah, I, I did. Um and don't as well, I've gone to events since, well, in the, you know, brief four months that we had in between December of 2019 and March of 2020. Yeah. Um, I, I've gone to events since, um, and I was in one club and I found an uncapped pin in the toilet and I was like, fucking great, lovely, awesome. Yeah, so me being me, I then, um, <laughs> I, I knew the guy behind the bar, I was like, he got a sharps box. <laughs> sort of like that harming head come in, just, yeah. you know, get a sharps box and some tweezers, please, thank you. And, but I think that when you're in recovery, you do that naturally anyway, you just think that this has to be picked up. Yes, I may not work here. You know, this may not be an event that I've got any hand in, but I would still rather me who knows how to actually pick things up safely you know, and I'm not going to give myself a, a needless injury. I'd much rather I do that rather than you do that. Yeah, definitely. I was the same even before I, I got into recovery. So when I was going for appointments at the drug and alcohol service, I would always have my sharps box with me in my bag. And on the way into the service, I would go around like all the little alleys and stuff behind the building and pick up other people's needles because I didn't like want stuff there. It made all of us look bad. You know, it makes it harder for these services to get set up in new places, you know, it increases stigma. Um, so I used to do a little cleanup job and then take them into the exchange after my appointments. And I always used to get told off for doing it. They'd be like, you know, you're putting yourself at risk. But I was like, I know how to handle needles. I know how to do this. And I would rather like do my bit for, for reducing the stigma, you know? Yeah. Um, and let's face it, the stigma is pretty bad. Like the stigma is pretty bad. I have had some out and out arguments on social media, um, you know, with, with certain types of people. and. Like, um, I think we've talked about this in the past. I actually took myself off Facebook for a little while because I realised I'd spent every day for the last year arguing with bigots and strangers. I tend to stay out of Facebook arguments just because I'm not sure necessarily how productive it is, but I admire people who can be bothered dealing with it because even if the person you're arguing with doesn't change their opinion, maybe someone reading it might see things a little bit. Yeah. For me, it was just kind of like, yeah, I, I did have to take myself off for a little while because it, it can be toxic. Because you're, you're constantly having to fight stigma and things like this and and people's preconceived notions as to what an addict is. Um, and I remember this one person saying something along the lines of, oh, well, you can spot an addict a mile off because, you know, they're all gaunt and their hair's all over and they look a mess. And I would like, actually, when I was using, I never left the house look, looking less than immaculate. Like, that was part of my thing. So don't assume that somebody's going to be one way just because you have this idea of them. Yeah, definitely. So it sounds like, you know, you, you stayed away from the kink community for quite a while. How did that feel? Because I know for a lot of people, kink is, it's more than just what you're into or what you do, isn't it? It's a real part of your identity. Um, sort of the hardcore kink uh, community, I did stay away from, but obviously like my, myself, I have a, a pup site myself and pup play, I think was really, um, important in me seeing, still being able to be hands-on in kink albeit, albeit it's a it's a much tamer version of kink because put play is very it's like recovery it's very individual to the person um i'm a social pup 
Um, I like the environment. I like, you know, things like, like that. You have some sexual ones, but I mean, to be honest, I like at least two locked doors between me and the outside world before I think of doing anything. And so, yeah, I, w I still was part of the King community in Newcastle because Newcastle does have quite a nice uh, pub community. Um, and that sort of, it kept me, I don't want to say sane, but it, it still allowed me to at least keep my oars in the water. And how did you find sort of people's understanding around your recovery within the kink community? Because it sounds like initially you'd sort of gravitated maybe towards people who were using a lot of drugs. Have you found now there's a, a good sort of um, like recovery or, or sobriety sort of section within the kink community? There is. Um, there's a, a group on Facebook called Real, Real Clear Fetish. I've done interviews with them as well before. And they actually have companion events set up for, so for Recon Fetish Week, which is basically like it's, it's Fetish Pride in London. Um, they always have an event called Going In Dry. Basically it's it's held at a venue without any alcohol or anything like that. It's just kind of to to ease people into that, you know, that socialising vibe without alcohol. Um, so there are little bits of little pockets of so a sober king community you know doing the rounds yeah. um we are out there we are, we are out there and, and thanks to you know things like facebook and stuff it makes it easier for us to be a community despite us you know like i think the nearest person of me on that facebook group is probably in manchester but we're still a community, even though there's hundreds of miles between us. So, you know, if someone's struggling with something, we can just get on there and we can create a post and then that gains traction. And there is a community, there is a, a recovery kink community. Um, and, but I, I think that it needs to be bigger for a lot of people. I'm not going to say, oh, you should stop drugs. But I think that we're reaching a crisis when we're looking at, um, especially younger people's mental health. Um, and physical health because when we're using we put our body through the absolute ringer like i wouldn't have slept for three days um i wouldn't have eaten properly for for three days i probably wouldn't have drank anywhere near enough for three days and then your body's spending the next week trying to catch up and just when you're back on an even keel you start it all over again so i mean like i, I dread to think of the damage i've done to my body How's your health generally now? Like, have you noticed any sort of ill effects from your new drug use? Um, not really, no. Um, I get, I've got bad circulation, but that's simply because I used to, you know, yeah. inject. Um, and that, that's pretty much it. Um, I, I've kind of, I've gotten over the, the, the worst of the effects, I think. Um, but I think part of that was also because I was listening to my body throughout the entire, you know, especially at the beginning of my re recovery, I was listening to my body. It's like, am I tired now? Yes, I'm tired. It's time for you to go to sleep. It's, it's little things like that. I think that's such a big important part of healing, isn't it? That going from seeing your body as just a tool to get drugs into your brain to actually treating it like a part of yourself and, and learning about mm -hmm. self-care. Because um, I'm similar, like, I seem to have mostly got through my addiction physically unscathed. I've got quite a lot of scarring and circulation problems is a given if you've injected even for a short period of time. Like um, my hands swell up when it's cold and go numb and things like that. But um, but it could be worse, you know. Yeah. Um, but I know that if I don't make taking care of my physical health a priority, I can do just as much damage to myself post-addiction as I did during addiction. You know, in the early days of my recovery, I was ordering 14 inch pizzas every night and drinking three litres of energy drink every day and chain smoking and, you know, anything that would give me some kind of buzz. And I've had to learn that I can't treat myself that way because it doesn't actually feel that different from being addicted to heroin. You know, once mm -hmm. you get down to it, you're still in that position where you're trying to fix the inside of your head with the stuff that you're putting into your body and you're damaging yourself and taking that as an acceptable cost when actually mm -hmm. it it really isn't over time is as kink been part of your healing process in your recovery yes and no um yes in that pop play was really important in the beginning of my recovery um 
but I got in recovery for me, not for kink. The kink bit's nice. It's a nice add-on to it. Yeah. Um, but I got in recovery, so I literally, I hate this phrase, so I can live my best life. And part of that, me living my best life, is kink. But it's the two aren't linked, sort of intrinsically. Um, they're, they're bedfellows, shall we say. That makes a lot of sense. I really identify with that as well. You know, that for me, recovery always has to be about me enjoying my life. Because if I'm not enjoying my recovery, then I might as well be back where I was. You know, I wasn't really enjoying my drug addiction, but at least I was high. <laughs> so um, yeah. life has to be good to, to be worth kind of focusing on improving. Um, and like you, I, I didn't want to have to give up the, the good things in my life for my recovery you know I was under quite a lot of pressure in early recovery not to be going to gay bars and things because it was seen as a risk but I wanted mm -hmm. to be in them so I went and and never found it a huge trigger I was nervous at first more social anxiety I think than fear about relapsing just because I hadn't socialized on a straight head for a very long time um but it felt significant to me to be back with my community and, and for me that's the queer community and, and for you, I guess, both the queer community and the kink community are a mm -hmm. huge part of, of your recovery capital and, and your life quality. Yeah. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, so is there anything else that you want to add around kink or chemsex or anything else we've discussed? Because I don't want to assume that I've asked you everything that's interesting. No, you've been kind of really kind of on the nose with everything. Brilliant. Cracking questions, like really, really good questions. Awesome, that's good to hear. Thank you. Um, and what would you say is the most important life lesson that you've learned through all of this journey that you've been on? Always wear clean underwear because you don't know if you're going to get run over by a bus. <laughs> Excellent. Good stuff. Okay, so I think we can wrap up there. Thanks so much for coming on and I hope everyone listening enjoyed it. Thanks. Thanks for listening and see you next time here on Not In Vain. I'll be chatting to Katie Marshall, Chair of B Trans Support and Community, about trans mental health and well-being.